Hi everybody, welcome to Producing the Beatles, the podcast dedicated to exploring the untold story of producer George Martin's revolutionary collaboration with John, Paul, George, and Ringo. I'm your host, Jason Krupa, and today we'll be examining the creative process behind the arranging and recording of the song Eleanor Rigby from the Beatles' 1966 album, Revolver. In 1966 and 67, the Beatles built a number of songs on simple chord structures, which acquired more complex layers once in the studio. Tomorrow Never Knows, for instance, is built on one chord, and Paperback Writer on two chords. Eleanor Rigby is also built on two chords, and like these other songs, it needed arranging to come to life. Have a listen to a bit of one of the many home demos Paul recorded. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? So how do we get from that to this? To answer that question, we'll talk to a concert cellist, give a nod to the Beach Boys, and take a shower with Alfred Hitchcock on this episode of Producing the Beatles. Back in 1965, when Paul brought Yesterday to the studio, he essentially had a finished arrangement, at least from the perspective of a four-piece rock and roll band. He had a beautiful melody, and he'd worked out a simple, elegantly played guitar accompaniment. It was so complete, in fact, that his bandmates couldn't think of anything to add. Finally, George Martin suggested strings, which Paul initially rejected because he associated them with the syrupy, sentimental wall of violins that so many producers used behind pop vocalists. But Martin had a classical string quartet in mind, not an ocean of saccharin. Yesterday's string score was groundbreaking at the time because it pointed toward a classical tradition that was a foreign country to pop music in the 60s, but it wasn't terribly adventurous in terms of scoring. What it did do, besides adding a layer of polish that helped the record sell millions of copies, was to suggest greater possibilities. Yesterday planted a seed. Now aware of what Martin could do, Paul wanted strings on Eleanor Rigby as well. Now, I like timelines, and given what we know of the Beatles and George Martin's schedules, it seems likely that sometime around Sunday, April 24th, or the afternoon of April 25th, Paul brought the finished melody and lyrics to George Martin's flat at Five Summers Crescent in London to work on the arrangement. As Martin would tell the New Musical Express in August 1966, Paul played the piano, and I played the piano, and I took a note of his music. In 1987, Martin would tell Mark Lewison that Paul had said he wanted the strings and Rigby to, quote, be doing a rhythm. In a 1994 interview on Dutch TV, Martin added more. The score for Eleanor Rigby was very much Paul's composition, you know, the song itself. And he thought a lot in terms of 
orchestral writing too. He couldn't write orchestral music, but he had an imagination which fitted in with what I was doing. And he actually, you know, um, we sat down at the piano, we worked out how the score should sound before I wrote it. Martin's modesty is practically the stuff of legend, and with comments like this, you'd think he would have almost written himself out of Beatles history if he could. But as observant and talented and endlessly curious as Paul was, it's unlikely he would have made the associations Martin ultimately made for this score, and he would never have been able to work out all the moving parts. As Martin just noted in that clip, Paul simply didn't have the technical knowledge. Of course, Martin would never have conceived of the score at all without Paul's song, so we have to give each man his due credit. One of Martin's early dreams was to become a composer of film scores, a job that involves, among other things, creating an emotional subtext to on-screen visuals through music. As you may have noticed, the lyrics of Eleanor Rigby are full of cinematic imagery. So whether consciously or unconsciously, Martin effectively wrote a film score for Paul's two-character drama, and to do so, he drew inspiration from one of the most famous cues in the history of film music. Bernard Herrmann, by the 1960s, had established himself as one of the great film composers, having written iconic music for Citizen Kane, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and a series of Hitchcock films that elevated what a film score could do in terms of storytelling. There are whole scenes in 1958's Vertigo, for instance, that are devoid of dialogue, allowing Herrmann's music alone to articulate the tumultuous inner world of Jimmy Stewart's character. As an aspiring film composer in the late 50s, Martin would have been paying close attention to what Bernard Herrmann was doing, and he may have also heard in Herrmann's scores certain references to composer Maurice Ravel, whose orchestrations Martin admired. In fact, in his score for Fahrenheit 451 in 1966, Herrmann uses a variation on a theme from Ravel's 1899 composition, Pavan for a Dead Princess. In retrospective interviews starting in the 70s, Martin always cited Bernard Herrmann as his inspiration for the Eleanor Rigby string score, and he often specifically cited Herrmann's score for Fahrenheit 451. But there are a couple of problems with this. First, much of the Fahrenheit score is comprised of a lush, melodic string section like the cue you're hearing now, with only one piece of music really approaching the style of Rigby's strings. That's curious, but maybe it's looking a little too deeply. The second problem, however, is much bigger. According to Bernard Herrmann's biographer, Stephen C. Smith, in the book A Heart at Fire's Center, Herrmann wasn't contracted to write the score for Fahrenheit until May 1966, and as evidenced by his handwritten score held in the UCLA archives, he didn't complete the score until June 25, 1966 almost two months after Eleanor Rigby was recorded. If we rule out the possibility that George Martin was time-traveling, but accept his assertion that Herman was indeed the inspiration behind Rigby's score, then we have to look elsewhere for similar examples of that stabbing staccato string style in Herman's work. Alfred Hitchcock's film Psycho was released in the summer of 1960, and it completely scared the shit out of everybody who saw it. 
not least because of the horrific scene where Janet Lee is stabbed to death in her motel shower, accompanied by the sound of this music. The effect of that scene was powerful, not just in the cinema, but radiating out into the culture as well. Anecdotal evidence has indicated that sales of opaque shower curtains plummeted and the number of motel stays declined dramatically. Seeing how vulnerable she looked in the scene, Janet Lee quit taking showers for a good long time herself. This 60-second piece of music, or at least the first half of it, became instantly famous. It was apparently so famous that it was still stuck in George Martin's head six years later when he began working on the score for Eleanor Rigby. Psycho was re-released theatrically in 1965 in America, so it's possible that it somehow re-entered Martin's consciousness that year, but it may well have made such an impression on him, as it did on so many people, that it continued to resonate all those years later. So why the persistent mistake? Memory is tricky, and when people start telling stories of their past, those stories often stick, whether they're accurate or not. And the farther we get away from events, the more we compress time. In truth, in those interviews, Martin may actually have been thinking of how the Fahrenheit score influenced his own music for the Yellow Submarine animated film, a subject we'll discuss in more detail in a later episode. But let's face it, who does research to check on their memory's accuracy? Martin was living his life. Journalists and historians and fans are the ones who've been dissecting it for the past 50 years. Much to his credit, once this evidence came to light a few years ago, Martin revised his story and began saying in lectures that it was Psycho that inspired Rigby's string style. It's worth stopping here for a minute to reflect on how Martin took a piece of music that became shorthand for anxiety, fear, horror, and death, and transposed it into an accompaniment for a narrative about isolation and loneliness. It also says something about how Martin approached his work. Music is music, after all, and whether it's rock or classical or jazz, hip-hop or Northumbrian folk music, it's capable of expressing and eliciting subtleties of emotion that no other medium can. As head of Parlophone Records, Martin had naturally worked with a variety of musical artists, and one of his strengths lay in his democratic view of all music as, essentially, equal. This insight allowed him to embrace seemingly disparate ideas over and over with the Beatles. By filtering them through his own wide-ranging view of music, he was able to combine these ideas and help the Beatles find ways of expressing them to create something that sounded completely new. George Martin published three out of the four pages of his Eleanor Rigby score in his 2002 book, Playback, which I showed to Karen Ray. My name is Karen Ray. I play cello in New Orleans with the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra and also with the show orchestras in the Sanger Theater. Now, yesterday is a standard string quartet, and Eleanor Rigby is a double string quartet, but Karen mentioned that the writing is still in the string quartet form. I asked her to explain what that means. Well, you know, the standard string quartet, it's two violins, uh, viola, and cello. The cello supplies the bass, the viola is sort of the tenor line, and then there's a second violin that sort of serves like second soprano in the choir, 
and then the first violin is the top voice. So that sort of voicing is still used in Eleanor Rigby in sort of more contemporary string quartet music where the violin might jump up and play higher than the violins, and that creates a very particular sound. Nothing of that ever happens in Eleanor Rigby. It's standard as far as the voicings. It's just the utilization of the instruments as a rhythm section is quite, I think, innovative. Right. Tell us a little bit more about that. The string writing in Yesterday, that was much more what you'd expect to hear from a string quartet. For Eleanor Rigby, where they used a double string quartet, which means four violins, two violas, two cellos, they played with these repeated and percussive and even aggressive quarter notes and eighth notes. So essentially, since there's no other accompaniment, the strings were being used as the rhythm section of the band, like the drums, the bass, and rhythm guitar. I remember when I was in high school, when I first heard Eleanor Rigby, I remember hearing those repeated driving C major and E minor chords for the first time, and I just thought, whoa, that's how string players can sound like rock and roll. It was a revelation for me. I want to go back to what you said about the aggressive quarter notes. George Martin describes some of his string writing here as marcato as opposed to staccato. And you can see it written in the score here, marcato. What's the difference between the two? Marcato, I would say, is like a heavy staccato. Mm -hmm. Staccato means very short. Marcato means short but very heavily marked. That's literally what it means is marked. And staccato means very short. You know, in um, Eleanor Rigby, when the cello comes in... That's like very marcato, that heavy, sort of short but heavy sound. Now, one of the string players said that the musicians contributed to the score at the session, altering what had been written. But that's not what you're seeing, right? Yeah, from what I saw, from looking at the score and listening to the recording, it was exactly what was on the recording. The double string quartet just came in and played exactly what he wrote. One, two, three, four. Okay. So let's get back to our timeline and get this song recorded. Paul and George Martin worked on the score on either the Sunday or the Monday, and then on Tuesday, April 26th, Martin oversaw a 12-hour recording session for the song And Your Bird Can Sing. On April 27th, Martin wrote out the Eleanor Rigby score and then presided over a Beatles mixing and recording session from 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. The following day, April 28th at 5 p.m., Martin met John and Paul in Abbey Road Studio 2, where the two Beatles observed and offered comments from the control room, while Martin conducted the string players. For Paul's benefit, Martin had the musicians play two versions of the score, one with, then one without, vibrato. Hi, right, Paul, hey there. Do you, want him to use, yes? do you want him to use the chords without vibrato at all? Do you want to hear it? Paul couldn't hear a difference, but the string players preferred the score mostly without vibrato, and Martin agreed, leading them through a total of 14 takes. For recording, engineer Jeff Emmerich mic'd the instruments very closely, emphasizing the sound of bows across strings, especially the low growl of the cellos. The proximity of the microphones horrified the musicians, at least one of whom wondered what type of sound the producer and engineer were going for. Martin also had Emmerich record the score across all four tracks of the four-track tape, two instruments per track, then mix the result down to one mono track, numbered Take 15, on a new four-track tape.
It was onto this tape that Paul, John, and George would add vocals. The next day, the 29th, Paul recorded his lead vocal. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Lives in a dream, waits at the window, wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Who is it for all the lonely people? Then on another track, he added a harmony vocal, with John and George singing, Ah, look at all the lonely people. And at this point, all involved considered the recording complete. Martin and Emmerich did three mono mixes with the last marked best, and everybody moved on to the next session. But sometime during the next month, while they continued to record other songs for the album, Martin had a brainstorm. He realized he could reintroduce the song's refrain at the end to create a counterpoint vocal melody against the main melody. Counterpoint, two different melodies playing at once that complement each other, is common in classical music, like the Bach fugue you're hearing now, but in the 60s, it wasn't that frequently heard in pop music. But it did show up occasionally. Martin has said that the Beatles didn't know the term counterpoint or understand the concept until he explained it to them, but they had probably heard it applied by Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, who had been doing this kind of thing instinctively for years. One excellent example of counterpoint in the Beach Boys' work is the chorus of Help Me Rhonda. Listen for the backing vocals. So on June 6th, at midnight, after a five-hour mixing session for the album, Martin directed Paul in recording the new part. Here's what the end of the song sounded like before this edition. No one was saved, all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? All the lonely people. Where do they all belong? And here it is with Paul's counterpoint vocal overdub. No one was saved, all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? All the lonely people. Where do they all belong? And this planted another seed. The following year, when the Beatles recorded She's Leaving Home, John and Paul wove complementary vocal lines around each other in the song's chorus. This time, the idea was entirely Paul's. She, we gave her most of our lives, is leaving, sacrificed most of our lives. We gave her everything money could buy. She's But I'll save the story of that recording for another episode. Thanks for listening. 
Producing the Beatles is written, directed, edited, and produced by me, Jason Krupa. Special thanks to Karen Ray for discussing the score with us, to Steve Benson for creating the Eleanor Rigby vocal isolations, and to Matt Limler for playing the Eleanor Rigby score for us on piano. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at PTBeatles, and for more information, including show notes and references, check out our website, producingthebeatles.com. You can also find our email there if you have questions or comments. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to rate us on iTunes and let your friends know about us. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to us using your favorite podcast platform. Music